I'm Megan DeGraff, and this is Below the Canopy, a podcast brought to you by Community Forests International. In this episode, I speak to Suzanne Greenlaw, a citizen of the Holton Band of Maliseet Indians and a PhD candidate in the School of Forest Resources at the University of Maine. In her research, Suzanne weaves Wabanaki ecological knowledge and Western scientific knowledge to improve access to culturally significant plants, such as basket-quality black ash trees and sweetgrass. Let's get into it. Hi, how are you? I'm doing okay. Yeah, it's a beautiful day, the start of summer. You haven't had buckets of rain lately like us? Well, we have, but I have been late in my gardening, so it soaked all the seeds in and they're sprouting up really nicely. Okay, the timing's pretty good then. This feels like a really natural segue into talking to you about plants, because when we spoke before, you you described yourself as having a lifelong love of plants. Where did that curiosity come from? For me, I guess it started with my mother and started with just gardening for flowers. And so from an early age, I would help her with choosing flowers and color, really as an expression of art in some ways or of color. And that relationship and that that love of a mother and child, and I have young kids right now, I can feel myself starting to get emotional. <laughs> I have an eight-year-old and a five-year-old, and now they're starting to express a lot of love as well. But what I see in their love of gardening is a reflection of the love that we share. It's they're wanting to be with me. And so I see myself as a young child wanting to be with my mother and share love. And it was around plants. And so I think that core started there and, and it just grew in different ways. So I know your research and your career path have both revolved in some ways around plants. In terms of that interest in plant science, was there someone in your life who inspired you on that path? Not one large figure that inspired me. I think I had a lot of small inspiration along the way. While I always loved plants, I didn't understand what a botany job looked like. I didn't have anybody who worked in the environmental field in my family. And so understanding what an ecology job was, I just didn't know what they looked like. So along the way, I, I got a small job. Actually, the Holton Band of Malisee Indians is where I'm a citizen of. And I got my first environmental job there. But that was in water resource because that's typically what our natural resource departments have. You know, we live on rivers and water resources monitoring the rivers is really important. So I started to understand more about what environmental jobs are. And then I, I got another job actually in National Park in the botanical crew. The veg crew is what we were called. And so I started to see what actual like wetland or vegetation jobs look like. But that still wasn't my f- full love. There was all of these parts, these parts of a whole that I didn't see how they fit together fully. But each step along the way, it sort of unfolded itself, I would say. So it was all these different bosses I had. Like I was amazed by my boss in Acadia. She could name every plant that she saw. <laughs> and that was like completely amazing. And I wanted to be like that. I wanted to know the plants' names. And I guess this early interest in plants and this early interest in different kinds of science or different ways of knowing led you to where you are now. Yeah. Which is as a graduate student doing your PhD research. And I know that you employ both Western science and indigenous ways of knowing to understand natural resources challenges. Can you tell me a little bit more about the benefit of integrating both of those knowledge systems in natural resources management? Well, for me, the benefit is my client or my, the person I work for are Native people. So 
it's just a really obvious step there. If you're trying to create tools and outcomes that benefit Native people and harvesters, I need to be able to lift up and center their knowledge, right? So it's also my knowledge. I'm a harvester as well. And so I would say I'm forced to use Western science for Native people because the majority of our understanding of the world in a natural resource management position is through Western science. I mean, there's a larger answer to that in that we know that Native people stewardship values typically increase the biodiversity of a landscape, right? So you can then look to Native people's lifestyle or philosophy as a way to understand of how to live within our landscape while still thriving. And that is like a larger answer, but it's challenging because we oftentimes in that question, I feel like people are asking me to reduce down in a Western sense, what is that thing that's indigenous knowledge? <laughs> and to help inform this management style. And that's not how that works, right, for Native people. It's really sort of our, our Native instructions of our stewardship values of responsibility, accountability, a landscape that has agency, so landscape is a, is a being, and that we treat it as such. Those are the values that we talk about that are embedded with our whole practice. It sounds like it's not really a question of the benefit of those two knowledge systems together, but rather that it is just a critical piece that you have both of them together and that you're sort of obliged to work within the framework of Western science. Yeah, I would say Western science is still the gatekeeper mm. when it comes to knowledge, knowledge formation, right? That sort of style of understanding the world is how we accept and prove things. I think that's slowly changing. Mm -hmm. But it's very slow and, and there's a lot of problems in that change because Western science is still the gatekeeper in, even in that change. <laughs> yeah, it still, it still occupies a disproportionate amount of space and recognition and authenticity in the questions around, well, in this case, conservation. For sure. But related to that, there seems to be growing interest in more joint activities that use both of those knowledge systems, for example, co-management of forests using both knowledge systems and, and integrating Indigenous knowledge into forest conservation efforts. And I know you've collaborated with a number of non-Indigenous conservation organizations and government agencies through your career. So I'm curious to know about some of those initiatives. For example, can you tell us a little bit more about some of the challenges you've observed of integrating those two knowledge systems together? in a given project? So one particular project I work on is in national park systems in the United States. There is a movement for co-management, right? And they're starting to actually change that word co-management because it still doesn't really address the power dynamic that we just talked about. Who gets to decide what is appropriate harvesting or what is appropriate management? Who is defining conservation? And that still typically is a natural resource professional instead of Native people who are defining the rules and regulations in the co-management. And we find that in Acadia National Park. So I work in sweetgrass harvesting in Acadia National Park, where in 2016, for all national parks, there was a federal rule change where prior to that rule, it was illegal to harvest anything from the national park other than maybe like a handful of berries or something like that. But any sort of indigenous harvesting was not allowed through the regulations. There were some specific allowances through some other legal means, but it was very park-specific. There was no one large rule that could be applied to everybody. So after 2016, 
that rule changed and Native people, federally recognized Native American tribes is who could harvest. And with that harvesting, there needs to be an environmental assessment connected for each species gathered. And it has to prove that the species is not negatively impacted. There's no significant impact, right? Which sounds like, oh, a great opportunity. Oh, so wonderful. Look at what they did for us. You know, it's not true. That's, that's like, that is the actual, how to make that work is really challenging. So what happened in Acadia is then first this, this botanist who had no relationship with Native people or who had never really done a research with Native people before ever had set up a botanical study to look at sweetgrass harvest response. And he set up a very rigorous, sound study around sweetgrass harvesting, where he gridded up the population, identified the abundance, identified a, a, a square that people could harvest in. Native people would come and harvest in the designated squares, and there'd be a pre- and post-harvest stem count. When I actually came to employ the study, this is where I came in to help with the Native engagement in employing the study, it was really uncomfortable. I, as a sweetgrass harvester, and these were my elders, as well as a scientist, had to tell people to say, the, the elders who've been harvesting sweetgrass for 50 years, I had to say, you will harvest here. <laughs> I was telling people where to go. I was telling them where they could harvest in, regardless of what they said to me. I'm like, I'm so sorry. I didn't set this up. This is how this person wants this done. I'm going to write down your responses, though, and fight to change this. <laughs> And so we did change it. We were able to have these two parallel studies. So that study was carried out to the end. And then we did this other study where we just followed Native people around. We said, where do you want to harvest? I will follow you. We will set up permanent plots in your locations that you choose to harvest in. They would have all these sort of ways of harvesting that were different. In total, we had about 15 harvesters in this large spot. And it was really, really amazing to kind of spend time with the collective of people, that's oftentimes we harvest in this sort of, in similar spots. And there's this, there's this collective management of a location, but everybody does things slightly different. And there's all this variation of practice based on their own teachings, their own observations. I think that's the component of the dynamic knowledge systems of that you can shift and change based on what they're observing. So how they choose and why they choose a harvest is based on their instructions, also what they're seeing in the landscape. and the seven generations of coming back here year after year after year and sort of you you know asking permission all that came out in the sort of indigenous led methods none of that came out in the typical controlled western science approach of the study and actually the results from those studies differed as well the western controlled approach or the predetermined methods the sweetgrass stems didn't change population at all they stayed the same so they didn't decrease or they didn't increase but in the indigenous-led locations, the sweetgrass stems increased. So actually, when you think about how that study could be published and interpreted, right, those have large impacts for Native people. That when you create a study around some their actual practice where they are describing the sort of the depth and the breadth of their knowledge and the variation and the all the kind of components that comes into their practice, you know, it shows that that stewardship relationship is there compared to the other study where it was completely controlled. The stewardship relationship wasn't there. I can even imagine, and I don't know if this is the case, but I can imagine that with the, you know, the paired trial that was designed by a, a Western scientist, that that artificial constraining of 
participants of the harvesters and where and how much they would harvest, the locations and how much they would harvest, that could have easily introduced additional confounding factors, right, that could have totally changed the results and not made them particularly useful or reliable or anything like that. So that's really interesting. I'm so glad that you undertook an additional study. If we're trying to understand and create research around Indigenous knowledge, we as scientists have to understand the methods we choose. Our literature review is all based on one particular way of knowing and actually doesn't fully support or understand and address Indigenous issues. It sounds like Indigenous-led has to be the way, you know, that's the only way to have legitimate and complete engagement and knowledge from Indigenous folks. Right. For so long, science has, scientists, as actors of science, we have sort of taken Indigenous knowledge, we have reformulated it through the own lens of science given it back to Native people and said, see, look what I did. (laughs) Aren't I great, (laughs) right? Like, shouldn't you be happy with this? And rarely does it address their issues or or even look like Indigenous knowledge back to them. Mm -hmm. And we want them to clap for us. We get the accolades as scientists, right? So while I had some people who really influenced my path and gave me a lot of positive things, I also had experiences with Native elders who, who really critiqued what I was doing for those reasons, for the fact that I was coming in with the sort of the high of science, right? Like we get told in our educa- education system, you are the expert, you are the cream of the crop. I remember that one too. <laughs> you're you're going to know so much. You're going to be so great. <laughs> and then you go into Native communities and they're like, what you're doing is harmful. And it was a really like a real challenging blow, like a, emotionally to be like, this is, I'm here for my community. And what they're telling me is that I'm actually causing harm. There are hard spaces to be in, but I think without that, I may have not found the path that, that I have found. You know, what's, what's been most important to me is my Native community has expressed that what I'm doing is beneficial to them. In that sweetgrass study, it was quite amazing. The first year that we got some statistical results back from the sweetgrass harvest, we have annual meetings and we were giving the presentation, you know, with our numbers and our numbers were saying that the sweetgrass population was increasing. Native people have been saying, have always said that sweetgrass harvesting increases population. But they've been told that they're wrong over and over again by a lot of people. They've been made to feel smaller and smaller in their knowledge base. And uh, when our first numbers showed the population increased, I heard some noise behind me. And I was like, I don't know what that is. And I turned around. And even now I still get a little emotional. And uh, Native people were like pumping their fists and clapping and cheering. <laughs> like I had never have that sort of response to a statistical analysis, you know, like. <laughs> but it was like, it was just so amazing and reaffirming for me as a Native scientist to just to have people, have Native people value the work, right? Because it was to address their issues. So that those are the markers for me that are success. That's what's important, is that we have outcomes that benefit Native people directly. I just want to deviate back to like Suzanne the person. Yeah. Because you mentioned that you, you are a harvester. And I was just curious, what do you harvest? My husband's a basket maker, and so we are often in the ash stand together. I would say both our relationship and our work life 
are married really well together and that we both love that time together. It's funny, we were just talking about this recently that, you know, we've been married for or together for like 12 years. We have two kids, very secure, happy relationship that also has some resentment in there. (laughs) Some like normal, normal navigation of duties and responsibilities that create some friction. Whenever we go to the Ashton together, it's like all of those friction points, all of the life frustrations just melt away. And it's like, (laughs) I remember why I fell in love with them (laughs) completely. (laughs) It's like falling in love again. It's just there's something about being out in the woods together where you don't have anybody asking for your time. It's just to be present with each other and also be present with the material in the wood and the trees in the same place over and over again. I'm really curious about the cultural values acquired through basket making. And I was wondering if you could give us a little bit of an example or tell us a little bit more about how those cultural values are acquired and maintained through basket making. Yeah, it's interesting when you lead with the basket because people, not native people always assume, well, I guess they don't fully understand the values that resides within our culture materials because a question will always be like, can't you do something else? Why is that really important to you? Isn't there another tree that does the same thing? Which I understand why they're asking us. So it's not just this idea of losing something simple, but these are a huge aspect in our community, basket making. Also, we had a lot of traditional materials we used. And I think specific reasons, black ash basket making has been retained within our community in this position of large importance based on, I would say, the spiritual relationship we have with the tree, the cultural relationship we have with the tree, as well as the sort of economic relationship. And so we have one of our creation stories that talk about Wabanaki people coming from the black ash tree, as well as other beings, not just humans. So that story is talked about a lot for us. And and there's other sort of ways you can interpret our spiritual relationship with ash. Our cultural relationship is based on sort of this, the relationship you have through harvesting, right? Like I said, when we go out into the ash stand, we go to the same stand every couple of years for generations. And the person who showed us this ash stand had been there for his whole generation and his uncle showed him. So within the same location is all of these generations of relationships and energy and, and beings that, that are there with us while we harvest. We have this huge economic importance where, you know, through colonization and assimilation policies, Native people were put onto reservations. Their natural resources, their landscape was stolen and then stripped of the sort of economic um, import, economics or the, the money of it. Like the state, for the east in the state of Maine, they put Native people on reservations, then they illegally stole that land and all that timber was used to fund the state of Maine, right? That, you know, during the 1800s, a timber boom. That was all native land that was stolen. And there are ways the state of Maine, how they dealt with that was then to turn us, to control us and then turn us into beggars. And as well as after beggars, they turned, they also tried to assimilate so they weren't beholden to the treaty rights anymore. And so through that period when people were really struggling, basket making provided a source of income for native people. So one way the state was trying to assimilate Native people was to starve them to death. So initially the setup was that the large checks of land that the state was holding for, for Native people, they were managing for them. And it, all the funds went into this Indian fund. And that from that fund, they would give that money back to Native people. But what they did was hire an Indian agent 
and dole out that money like rations. And if you didn't, if you didn't act appropriately, if you left the reservation, if you spoke your language, if you practiced your spirituality, they would not give you your money. But basket making provided that sort of resistance a little bit, provided a source of income where you didn't have to assimilate or you, you could say, I don't have to do that. I can feed my family. So within the basket, all of those, all those values reside. And as Native people, we often believe energy is, is a part of the ways we do things. So that when we weave something, the what we're thinking is woven into that basket and stays within that basket. So oftentimes our baskets hold our hopes for the future, our, you know, our thoughts of our past and our ancestors. That's all the stuff that why basket making is important to us and why we fight so hard to maintain it. That brings us to the next natural question around ash. There's a lot of concern right now about emerald ash borer, EAB for short, which is an invasive pest that is killing ash trees. You've mentioned previously that Western and Wabanaki knowledge and, and ways of being can conflict. How might an EAB, an emerald ash borer response that's rooted in Wabanaki knowledge, differ from or complement an approach that's driven by Western science and conservation? Is there a path where the two of those, the two knowledge systems can work together for EAB protection? Again, I think it gets down to that if you're trying to address Indigenous people's needs, you definitely should have tools that understand both knowledge systems. So I don't, I think, you know what's really challenging is the, because I've been asked this question before and I haven't really figured out how to articulate sort of the struggle I have in answering it. And I think in part is because there is some assumptions that when I'm being asked sometimes, it feels like, like, how could Indigenous knowledge help us all? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <Right? laughs> no, it's okay. I, I get asked this a lot. I'm yeah. trying to, like, right? And so it's this, I, it's this idea that, like, somehow Indigenous knowledge is going to save everybody. Right. Right? And so it's this idea that somehow Indigenous knowledge is for everybody, and can save everybody. And I can, in no way did that make me feel mad, that question. But I think somewhere in there, underneath it all is that. But there is some parts of me that get frustrated sometimes when I get asked that question because people are asking, how can Indigenous knowledge save us, but yet let's not even help Native people themselves? <laughs> right? Native people are still being subject to reduced access issues, their own practice, even in science, for example, where that scientist wasn't even with sweetgrass wasn't supporting the actual practice of, no, of native knowledge or native generation or knowledge generation itself. Like their, their knowledge is being taken from them and, and asked to be used for everybody, but their practice is not being supported or valued as people. And so, so kind of to answer that question, if you're trying to help native people, then you're, then I think that that can work together. And I think you should, I think everybody should, because it's actually not the knowledge, but it's the people that is, is the practice itself that should be uplifted, right? It's, it's understanding the values and ethics and relationships, not so like settler people can go out and be like, oh, I want to do this too, because that happens with sweetgrass a lot. A lot of people are interested in going out and identifying sweetgrass and picking it. And that 
concerns a lot of Native people because you're not taking the ethics of their values with you. You if you don't have that long history or the relationship and and sort of potentially the sort of internal governance that comes with the ethics and the values that you've been told all your life. And so, yeah, so so those questions kind of confuse me a little bit on how to answer. I think letting people, letting Native people do their thing is probably the best way to to manage. And when it comes to EAB, Emerald Ashbor, I think we should just support Native people's concerns, like gather seeds like they want. There is this feeling of, of future generations that Native people see in the long term and less about the short term, right? Well, the short term and long term perspectives. I think while in the short term there'll be pain, I think in the long term people are hopeful. I think planning for the seven generations is important. I think that is a way that they can that can kind of coexist together. I just want to end all of this with more of a hopeful bent. What gives you hope in your life and your line of work? I think love gives me hope. It's like that people are are continually interested and have a love for the planet. People are still trying. They're not giving up. And while there's a lot of concern maybe around about power, around who gets to set rules, who who determines what is appropriate, like all of those things, Native people, right, have are disenfranchised oftentimes in natural resource management. That concerns me about for Native people. But I think there are a lot of settler scientists, all these non-Native people are interested still in learning. They're, they want to get it right. And I think that is slowly changing the narratives. There's the, you know, the narrative is changing. Native people are, are more power of their own narrative. And I think that in particular has been really helpful. Um, and that people still want to learn and grow and change. And I, that gives me hope. What do you think is the single greatest thing that we can do to repair our relationships to the land and the forest? This is sort of a larger answer, or, or thinking about our, own, our lives and our choices. But like I said, listen to the forest. But what that means, though, is that you make your choices around listening. So we often forget, I think, in the short-term economic gain of things, how our choices impact the larger environment. When we listen to the forest near us and you think about some of the choices we make that impact that forest, and then you step back a little bit bigger and you think about your choices, what you buy, you know, all of these things, well, it seems like we are removed from how that impacts the landscape around you. I I think if we could connect those threads more, maybe we could make different choices, right? So this is a long-term community gain of a landscape instead of the short-term gain. I think if you listen to your forest around you, that might affect how you make your choices. As you were speaking, Suzanne, it it occurred to me that I think this is one of the things that I think settlers could stand to learn the most, maybe, and that is to listen more. Right, and seeing how your impact affects everything, that our little pebble in in the water, the lake, you know, really does impact everything. That comparison reminds me a little bit of a story that my husband tells, and I see it a lot too, at basket shows or whatever, any art shows, he often does the whole process. So it's quite labor intensive, right? So you are you have a whole ash log and he uses the back of an axe, he's flattened the back of an axe and it pounds the log all the way down. It kind of slightly overlaps it and the, the material breaks along its annual ring width and it goes down the strip of the log, right? 
he'll say it kind of maintains the same integrity of how it grew, like it's not being milled or changed in direction. So you're working it with the direction that it grew in and sort of just those fibers. And so in that is a relationship of both seeing how the tree grew because you're actually witnessing each annual ring width and you can see kind of change in ring width based on, you know, like how much rainfall there was, it shifts in that way. And so you're just peeling apart the story of the tree really. And so in that practice, there isn't being intention, this intentionality, I guess, of, of doing things right, relationships of maintaining the forest itself, maintaining that ash stand. There's all of these things that kind of happen within the practice of that, that inter- interweaves you or intertwines you with the tree itself, right? So at these shows, when he's doing this, almost everyone, there'll be a, a non-Native person that will be like, you know, there's an easier way of doing that. <laughs> He's like, you know, this idea that the economic gain, right, that you could make more money if you did it faster. I can show you how to do it with this machine, right? Every time, that is the assumptions. These are like the base sort of assumptions within, the, within sort of our culture, right? To do it quicker so you can make more money. <laughs> and Gabe's like, I make enough money. I am fine with how I am. And I do this, this is not because I, <laughs> then he sometimes will come back and be like, it's not like I didn't know you could do it faster. He's like, I do this on purpose. This is, this, I'm intentional in how I do this practice because it maintains this sort of relationship. And I get to listen to the tree in this way when I, you know, it's, a, it's also an act of love. So, so it's so, it's so interesting that, that those concepts are really hard. You can hear them, but then to practice them is also challenging. You know, to just to feel like we have enough and then to be okay in that enoughness is also hard, I think, in our, in our larger culture of more, more, more. I think your story really illustrated a fairly fundamental difference in philosophy there, right? What is enough? We should, we should be happy with enough. We should want just enough. Right. That's respectful of our world, but just enough to keep us and our families and future generations. I wanted to say a really profound thank you. <laughs> for joining today. I really appreciate it, Suzanne. That was Suzanne Greenlaw, PhD candidate at the University of Maine, and I'm Megan DeGraff. Thanks so much for listening to Below the Canopy, a podcast produced by Community Forests International with audio engineering provided by Robin Edgar. A big thanks to the Government of Canada for supporting this project. Stay tuned for our next episode, and to learn more about our work, visit forestsinternational.org.